there wasn't much downside to taking the kind of risk that came associated with startup companies because we kind of seen how hard life gets hmm. and no matter how hard life can get with companies working or not working uh, it doesn't quite get as hard as uh, when you're struggling financially like that so I don't know it created a certain risk tolerance Success doesn't usually come along a simple path, and that was definitely true for Sean Sinha. He was raised by a single mom in Texas, fell in love with technology, went to MIT, dropped out to do a startup, and failed. He went back to MIT. But, of course, that's not the end of the story, or he wouldn't be on this podcast. He got a job at Microsoft, left to start another company, and this time struck gold by eventually selling that company to Google in 2010. Now he's the founder and CEO of yet another business, High Five, a video conferencing outfit that's breaking new ground. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and you're listening to the Fort Knox podcast, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. I do this weekly, bringing you the highest achievers. We're going to learn how the very best climb to the top and pull out lessons along the way. If that sounds good to you, make this a habit. Apple's podcast app is the most popular way to tune in, but Overcast, Stitcher, Google Play, and more. Mainly, just subscribe so we can keep this going automatically. I don't like straight lines. My career hasn't traveled in one, and chances are... Yours hasn't either. So I love when I get to explore the stories of people who started out at a disadvantage or struck out a few times before hitting that home run. That I can learn from. Here's Sean Sinha. So I grew up in Texas. Uh, I uh, was born in New York, actually. Actually, right around here. Uh, uh-huh. I was in Poughkeepsie. Uh, but I grew up and I ended up moving to Texas when I was uh, really young and grew up there. What part of Texas? Uh, near Dallas, right outside Dallas. Okay. And uh, this is uh, Friday Night Lights land, where uh, <laughs> high school football is uh, is king. Uh, I went to one of those high schools. Uh, we uh, we struggled financially, uh, so we didn't grow up with a whole lot of money. I found out that once I got to college, I found out when I looked at all our financial aid forms that uh, we actually grew up uh, under the poverty line, it turns out. But it took you going to college and looking at the forms to figure that I out. I didn't really. I mean, I, you felt it. I think we felt it, obviously, uh, and uh, and so you know we knew that that we weren't like uh, a lot of the kids that I went to school with. Uh, and so who's we? How big is your family? Uh, so I have uh, four people. My parents are split, but uh, it's my mom and uh, uh, my sister and I. Uh, we moved into a two-bedroom apartment while we were in high school, and uh, I think that was a pretty. Um, when I think back in hindsight, I think it was a pretty formative set of years that uh, led me down the trajectory that I ended up uh, going down. How so? Well, I'd say it was a couple of things. I think, number one, uh, you know, I felt uh, I was the oldest, so I felt responsible for eventually taking care of, ter- taking care of the family and uh, realized that uh, the typical path of an Asian kid or an Indian kid you know, get a uh, go to a good, nice college, get a nice uh, job at Microsoft or Google. At the time, it was Microsoft. Mm-hmm. Uh, wasn't going to necessarily be the the best path there. And, Why? Uh, well, you know, it was one of those things where you know, still a lot of people taking that path. A lot of people do take that path, and I don't. Maybe it was naive, and maybe it was a combination of growing up in the dot com boom and all of that. Uh, what we realized was that you know there was a lot. For me, it was a lot. There there wasn't much downside. To taking the kind of risk that came associated with startup companies because we kind of seen how hard life gets hmm. and no matter how hard life can get with companies working or not working uh it 
doesn't quite get as hard as uh, when you're struggling financially like that. So I don't know, it created a certain risk tolerance, uh, which led to, you know, recognition that it might be the best way to take care of my family, take care of my, 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 uh, my, my mom, my sister, everybody else around. And so I, don't know, I think that sort of set me on this path of getting, uh, uh, focusing on startup companies and building startup companies. What, what did hard times look like for young Sean? Uh, then for young Sean, oh man, it was, uh, oh, hard times. Uh, my mom wasn't around a lot. She had to work multiple jobs. Uh, you know, there was, uh, certain activities you could do. So simple example, you know, if you go to, if you're, uh, in the band, which I was, uh, you choose instruments that are uh, less expensive versus the instruments that are more expensive. Uh, you have cars so you that chose... are not new. I chose the trombone. Mm. <laughs> Uh, you drive, uh, you drive the car that's, uh, 15 years old versus getting the new car when you're 16. Uh, and so you, and you make do. And, uh, I don't know, we got lucky. Uh, we, uh, uh, got to MIT, ended up, uh, dropping out of school for a couple of years to do some startup companies. People the, don't often get lucky and get into MIT. Yeah, well, I, I think in the broader sense, I feel like we were pretty lucky. We had a lot of opportunity and, hey, you think about... What year did you go to MIT? Uh, that would have been 1997 at this point. Okay. And your your grades must have been... My grades are good. Good. Yeah, my grades your test good. scores must have been good. Test, test scores are good. Yeah. Which was relatively better, your test scores or your grades? Uh, they were both good. Okay. I, did, I did all right in school. <laughs> <laughs> school was all right. I wasn't necessarily uh, top of class or anything, but uh, I, was, I, was, I, but I did well But you were close. Yeah, I did well in school. Um, did you like school then? Love school. Was that, I don't know... An equalizer, an escape. What yeah, was it? Definitely, it was an opportunity creator. I think we we just knew that it was a path, uh, and uh, to this day, uh, I uh, I like to spend time with uh, with kids that uh, that did come from uh, from backgrounds like that and uh, have opportunities that might be created through uh, uh, through academics and uh, uh, through just getting into good schools and going to college. Did you have anybody to look up to when you were that age? Um, spending time with you. I would say probably probably not one on one. Well, actually, no, that's not true. There were there were definitely there were definitely some uh, some friends whose parents just provided some really excellent role models for me, particularly ones that were entrepreneurs, started companies, and so there were definitely um, sources of inspiration. But this was also, you know, I think remember this was also the time when the dot com boom was in its full heyday. So yeah. you you hear about. You know, we were right in the internet. I was, you know, early on Yahoo, on back top in of the it. Mid Yahoo, and even right. before Yahoo, Netscape and Mosaic had just mm -hmm. come out, and all of that. And so that's uh, the end of your high school, right? Yeah, because that's right at the end of high 94, school. Ninety-four. That's right. Yeah, there was Prodigy and AOL yeah. and all of these services that had just emerged, and so there was this thing that was happening that you could feel that you were a part of. And as a kid, I was, you know, that precocious kid that was connected to the internet, was on the computer all the time. I think there was just, there's just a lot of enthusiasm. I didn't really, I didn't think about it in terms of business sense then. It was just, there's this wave of technology happening and there was something in the environment around creating something new. And by the time we got to college, that's exactly what happened. There were a whole bunch of people that I was living with that had joined startup companies got all excited. Uh, I thought I was going to college to study physics. Turns out that computer science caught the eye. Uh, everybody around us was uh, in startup in, in startup land. And, uh, and one thing led to another. One of my first roommates came home uh, one day and he uh, uh, 
came home with, I don't know, a check for $20,000 or something like Whoa. that. Wow. Because uh, his company got bought by Amazon at the time. No joke. At like 18 or 19? This is, he was like 20 years old. 20 years old. And fast forward 20 years later, he's my co-founder at this company right now. Nice. Did he get any stock? Yeah, so that's what it was. Okay, it was a right. stock turned into this this payday. And you know, when you're 19, 20 years old in college, we thought we were millionaires, or we th- he, we thought he was a millionaire. And so uh, it turned out to be a pretty magical thing. And I think the thing that was really magical, more than anything else, was this idea of starting from nothing and creating something and bringing it into existence. And the idea that there's this process that you could be a part of. And that every big company in the world started with one or two people sitting around saying, there's an idea, and they brought it into life, and it turns into this big, amazing thing. You left MIT. We dropped out of MIT. <laughs> I in dropped what out of year? Uh, this must have been 1999. Uh, yeah, 1999. Maybe it's 2000. I think Not 2000. the best year to drop out of MIT. It really wasn't. It was about three months before everything uh, kind of went sideways. Uh, but uh, ultimately, it still ended up being a pretty good decision. The companies didn't go anywhere, those two, and then I ended up coming back to school. But So tell me about the you know dropping out of MIT to enter the School of Hard Knocks. Yeah, <laughs> that, was, uh, that was a lot of fun. It was, uh, we, there, were, there were a few friends of mine who uh, we decided to, uh, decided that you know we could we could do this we could we could start a company. What was this at the time? Uh, so at the time, uh, the company that we started was a mobile enterprise applications company. So we thought that mobile was going to be huge. True. Turns out we were right. Uh-huh. Just we were about twenty years, 20 years early, early, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and at this time, mobile was Palm WAP. Pilots. Yeah, WAP. Exactly. It was WAP, Palm Pilots, Blackberries, and Pocket PCs. Uh-huh. And uh, we started a company, and it turns out we had no idea what we were doing now, <laughs> what, what we were doing then. Uh, and so, uh, but we assembled a bunch of really great people. Uh, we worked for a few years. The company grew to a bit. Um, ultimately, 9-11 happened. Uh, we uh, didn't quite survive that. Uh, the company got assumed into some mobile mail and messaging companies at the time. Uh, but it was a pretty remarkable experience. And uh uh, one of the, the people that I worked with there uh, is an investor that I work with now. And uh, uh, we. Uh, Who is that? Uh, this is a guy named Hemant Taneja from General Catalyst. Mm. Uh, so I had an opportunity to go, and uh, he, was, uh, he was the CEO of the company at the time. What was the name of the was, company? Uh, this is a company called Isovia. Okay. Uh, we we're based out of Boston. And so uh, this is now going back 20 years, which is crazy. <laughs> but, uh, but now, you know, we're still working together. We're still uh, close friends. And uh, it's, uh, it's been fantastic for both of us to, to go down our trajectories. Was it easy to get back into MIT? Yeah, actually, they were very supportive. Uh, this was a pretty common thing at the time. People were dropping out of school to go do the startup thing. And, uh, um, you know, you had to come by and fill out a few forms. But uh, they encourage you to go and uh, do things like that. And uh, they expect you to finish your degree, whether it's in four years or whether it's in <laughs> six. Uh, and so we came back, and uh, and uh, it worked out great. Did you have a different focus coming back? Absolutely. What was it? Uh, it was a very clear purpose around uh, wanting to be embedded into... Uh, uh, technology that could get commercialized. So, you know, while the startup companies didn't exactly work, I think uh, I think it was pretty formative in that um, in that the, the the time that we spend creating companies convinced me that uh, creating companies is definitely something that I want to do in the future. 
And uh, what I wanted to do was spend time at MIT working on technology that could, over time, be commercialized. And so uh, not only did I get a renewed sense of purpose just around studying computer science, which was definitely the thing to study at the time, uh, but at the same time, I ended up uh, doing a master's program or a master's degree, uh, entered uh, uh, or, or, or got, uh, got into a lab that was working on the technology that most often got commercialized. So there's a lab at MIT at the time. It was called the Computer Science and AI Lab there. And uh, ended up deciding to do my research uh, associated with things that were close to, to, to being able to be commercialized. And you leave MIT and go to? Microsoft. Uh, so I took it's a not few the years. first place, especially during that time period, that you think of somebody with entrepreneurial ambitions going. So the the logic was actually pretty, um, I think, pretty straightforward. At the time, Microsoft still had a reasonable amount of shine. Now, you know, I think Google was, you know, this is now 2003, 2004. So, you know, at the time, Microsoft still had uh, 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 hadn't quite entered their their dark phase that they did in the late 2000s. No, but they were. Still, this this giant kind of looming over Silicon Valley, Definitely. seen as having this unfair advantage through scale of of being able to get it wrong two or three times before they got it right. Absolutely, I think you're totally right about that. And you know, I think there are a couple of things. I mean, I think it's certainly the case that Microsoft was this company that certainly I had idealized through high school and all of that. Particularly if you go back to Windows ninety five and all that. Mm. Um, so there's definitely there's definitely just a personal appeal to to, to Microsoft. Um, in uh, in maybe a a brain dead uh, moment of mine, I did have an opportunity to to join Google at that time and decide to still go with Microsoft. Which you know, had you gotten risk averse? Um, maybe I don't know. It might be different because we were in Boston at the time too, versus being in the Bay Area. Um, the purpose that I was really looking for, though, uh, around going to to Microsoft was, all right, had a couple of startup companies that didn't quite translate or didn't work well. Uh, but we saw this process of bringing something into market, getting customers, and building something of value. Uh, the thesis was pretty simple. Well, what does it look like at the other end when you're successful? Mm -hmm. And I thought that Microsoft would offer a better opportunity to understand what it looks like at scale. Now, maybe that was even you know more scale than what you needed to really see. Uh, but uh, but it was certain that was the thesis going into it, uh, and you know at some level I wouldn't necessarily call it risk averse, but I felt like okay two startup companies didn't quite work maybe I should join something that might offer you know a stamp of credibility, uh, and so I think you know sounds, probably a, little all those sounds a little risk averse probably to me. like probably not totally but probably more than before probably yeah, yeah and I, I I think that's probably fair and and I think. Uh, I think, you know, you go through a couple of experiences, you're like, okay, well, this is harder than we thought. Right, what right. do I not know that I need to know? Totally fair. And so I think, you know, I think you're right. Like, there probably was some amount of risk adversity that uh, that went in there. Um, and so, yeah. And and so we ended up at Microsoft for a few years. And then Google. And then, well, not quite Google yet. Okay. Uh, so uh, at Microsoft, uh, what was great was got a chance to work with some really great people. Uh, and we ended up working in the world of collaboration. So this is where I ended, ended up in the world of collaboration. And we worked on products like Microsoft SQL Server and Mi Microsoft SharePoint and uh, ended up building a really great set of relationships there. Uh, but uh, one of them, uh, we ended up uh, leaving Microsoft together to go start a company. So this was uh, back to startup land. Mm -hmm. And uh, that company was a company called Docverse. And uh, we started in Seattle. Uh, we raised some money. 
uh, from the Bay Area, ended up moving the company down to the Bay Area. And right as we had gotten into market, uh, that uh, that company uh, uh, ended up getting acquired by Google. Google came along and said, why don't you do this part of us? We said, sounds like a great idea. We think there's a lot that could come from this. And uh, we were right. We ended up getting bought by Google. And, Was that uh, unanimous? Uh, unanimous between me and my my team. Yeah. Um, between me and my co-founder, yeah, hundred percent. So there was no no. Let's ride this all the way. Let's go public. Let's. Well, I think at the time, at the time we 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 did the calculus, and in that particular case, the market that we were in, we said, even if we go roll the dice and keep running, which we felt like we had the opportunity to, we were just getting going there, and we were seeing some really good signs. We started to do some calculus and said, you know, and basically concluded that, well, we could raise money. How big is this market really? We don't really know. And then if we could trade that off with what we might be able to do at Google, we thought we were actually getting a pretty, uh, pretty fair shake there. And, uh, and we thought there was a really compelling opportunity inside Google. And we were still a small team, and so our How investors small? could make, we were, we, were, we were right around 10 people. Okay. And so, um, and so Google came along and said, um, and they came along and said, "Hey, look, this is what we want to do. This is our strategy." And we thought there was a pretty, uh, pretty amazing opportunity. Our investors would actually uh, do pretty well. We would uh, have a pretty good outcome. How much did you raise? Was it just angel investors? So you done a Series A? No, at this so at this time uh, we raised what became a seed round. So the term seed rounds hadn't really shown up yet <laughs> right and uh that was actually a big challenge with that company we were only trying to raise a million or a million five i think we ended up raising about 1.3 million uh but when we set out to raise I, I i tell people i tell friends and people that are starting companies i give them this advice that raising money is always a process regardless of what you do and i remember uh, uh doing the math and saying I think we did 65 meetings before we got a uh, offer for a term sheet, and uh, and it was hard because there was this dead zone for raising money then, what where year? this was uh, we raised money in early 2008, so okay. right before Lehman, right, uh, and so we um, we were looking for about a million, million five, but at the time you had angels. That would write twenty-five, fifty thousand dollars checks. So you could raise a few hundred thousand dollars through angels, or you had venture, which were still writing five to seven million dollar checks. And so there's this dead zone at the time, and so we got really lucky uh, in that we were able to work with some of the 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 people that created the seed investing um, market. Mm -hmm. So these were people like Steve Anderson with Baseline Ventures, Michael Deering with Harrison Metal, Naval Ravikanth, who now runs uh, AngelList. I mean, they created the seed investing um, movement. And, uh, and so it took us a while to figure that out. But uh, we hadn't raised a whole lot of money, and that meant that this outcome could be good for everybody. And, uh, and so Google came along, bought the company, and what was even more rewarding, I think, than the startup and the you know the economics and the financial which was all very nice um, but the thing that was really recording is that our team ended up building google drive at uh, at google out of the technology that we created at our startup company and uh and now google drive is you know used by tens and hundreds of millions of people now uh it's a pretty uh, i think it's a pretty remarkable success and that was pretty exciting as gratifying as that must be when this transaction happens yeah you're rich yeah <laughs> Yeah, overnight. At the time. Overnight. At totally. the time. Yeah. 
for the kid who was struggling growing up in Texas, <laughs> that must have been pretty gratifying. It was pretty amazing. Well, it, it led to a bunch of things. Um, I think, number one, it, uh, it completely took care of a whole lot of things in personal life. Like? Um, you know, paid off my mom's house, um, took care of a whole bunch of college debt, you know, took care of uh, all kinds of other things that sort of happened in, in our personal lives. Uh, it made it so that, you know, I was comfortable in our family. So I had just gotten engaged at the time. We were just getting ready to get married. And so, you know, sort of created, uh, created a nice, uh, um, you know, a nice situation for us personally. And so, yeah, it was great. I mean, it was, I, I won't lie, it was fantastic. <laughs> I mean, in a way, it's better. I mean, as, as again, gratifying it is as it is to have created Google Drive. Yeah. Creating Google Drive and having it stolen and not getting anything for it or being able to take care of those things. Yeah. You got both. Fair. Yeah, that's I think nice. that's exactly right. Yeah. I think, that, I think that's, that's a good way to describe it. And, and, you know, I think more than anything else, what it led to was a... Um, it led to uh, an increase in risk appetite for the next chapter sure. of our lives. And, you well, know, it's a decrease th in the downside, right? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. No, that's exactly <laughs> right. And, and when, we, uh, when I talk to, uh, when I give advice to, um, to both family and friends, particularly you know, some, of my, you know, some of my relatives that might be just going into college, friends that are just coming out of school, uh, the one true statement that I can tell them is that your appetite for risk only goes down from your 20s into your 30s. And unless you have some sort of, you know, extenuating outcome event, like, you know, we were, good, we were lucky <laughs> enough to have, uh, your appetite for risk is only going to go down. You know, you get married, you have kids, you get mortgages, all, you know, all these responsibilities. And so they create uh, a drag on your ability to take risk. So take as much risk in your 20s as you're able to take. And uh, in our particular case, we got lucky in that we found ourselves in a position to be able to just take an outsized risk for uh, the next startup company. And the next startup company is now five years in, and we're growing and scaling well, and we feel like we're trying to go build this for, uh, for the long term now, which is really exciting. Talk to me about values. Okay. Because I'm still stuck in that, what is it, 2000. 8, 2009, 8. Yeah, yeah, yeah. period where you are building this company, Google buys you out, yeah. you have the moment that certainly you must have been dreaming of in some shape or form yeah. since you were a teenager. Yeah. I'm going to buckle down, study this math, science, technology stuff, and yeah. one of these days, it's going to be good. Yeah. You've hit that moment. Okay. You can pay off your mom's house, pay off your student loan debt, take care of that other yeah. personal stuff that yeah. was difficult. Yeah. When people win the lottery, they can go off the rails. Yeah. When you've earned it, is it different, or do you figure out things that make you say, okay, there's some good things about this, but there are also some areas where I need to be careful and put some guardrails yeah. on my life? Um, I've never won the lottery, per se, <laughs> so I'm not sure I could be able to give you a direct comparison. Uh, but what I can tell you is um, I can tell you the following things. Uh, that all the personality traits or all the things that I, if I look back and connect the dots in hindsight, there, there was no foresight, there's no planning along the way that, le that led us here for sure. It was, you know, hey, this sounds like the right next step and you feel your way through. Uh, I think all of that, uh, none of that goes anywhere when this outcome happens. 
And so at that moment when, when, when an outcome happened, yeah, there were a lot of things in life that just got instantly better. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm not, I, 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 you know, people say that money can't buy happiness and all that. Like, it bought some happiness. Uh, we were <laughs> lack of money can take it away. Lack sometimes. of money can take away a lot of <laughs> happiness. That's I think that's a, the right way to describe it. And so, yeah, absolutely, lots of things with life got better. The the part that it it never solved was uh, well, what do you really want to do over a long enough period of time? And so, when you talk about guardrails and things mm-hmm. like that, you know, I think a lot of it. Our, our lifestyle and our choices didn't really change. We, we How still much of that was because it hadn't been just home run after home run? I, I, I remember I had an experience. Um, I was reporting in Silicon Valley during uh, a lot of this period. Yeah. I got there in late 1999 and was there for a long time, until around four years ago. And my first couple of years in the Valley, things are booming. There's all these stories to tell. These companies want to talk to me. I thought I must be brilliant, <laughs> right? <laughs> Um, just because it was me, right? Yeah. And then I switched jobs because I felt like tech reporting at that paper at that time yeah. wasn't growing really fast, so I was going to try some different things, moved into editing, and suddenly none of these companies cared about me anymore. Yeah. You know, I had a blog, but they didn't really want to talk to me for my yeah. blog. And I was like, wait, there were a couple of, of folks out there, you know, Sajeev Chahil, who was at Palm and later HP at the time, who kept yeah. in touch, Greg Joswick at Apple. Yeah. But most of them didn't care. And yeah. that made me realize, you know what? It's not about you. Yeah. You're not so smart. It's yeah. just, yeah. it's about where you're sitting. It's about where you're yeah, yeah. Did you notice anything about, maybe not even just at your company, but the other people yeah. around you, or even at Google who oh, you met, yeah. who had these outcomes, maybe hadn't had it as hard as you did getting there. Oh, were yeah. there differences in how oh, they reacted to there's, it? There's, there's, there's a total air that all of a sudden starts to come, you know, st- starts to surround you where, you know, oh, this person really knows what they're talking about. And you might be just saying exactly the same things you were when you were <laughs> no one. And, uh, and, and, and I think those are things that you have to be really careful about creating checks and balances for. Mm. And I think in our particular case, you know, when we started High Five, it was exceedingly important for me to work with someone who knew me in a way that would allow both of us to be checks and ba- you know, checking and balancing each other. Mm. So my co-founder can call you know, BS on me uh, at any point in time in a way that oftentimes, you know, becomes harder whenever you happen to see somebody on paper like that. And I'm sure I do that with folks that I, you know, respect in terms of what they're, achie- you know, what they achieve. And I, I, I suspect that everybody has to have that, you know, that sanity check or that person who can, who can be the sanity check for them. So yeah, there was definitely, there was definitely a, a, a lot of, uh, of, of, reflection i think that's required um and 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 at the same time i'll say that i think that's also balanced with you know a lot of the imposter syndrome Hmm. kind of tendencies that show up there you know we're starting a new company you know and and is is our prior success a function of our skill or was it a function of luck and how much of it was one or the other and you know what are we going to depend on here and and what i would say is that i think i think the thing to be really uh focused on is what did you learn and what can you learn and distill into things that you're going to act on with you know with strong conviction and then 
what things, you know, identifying the, the places where you really were lucky, and then what sort of led to that luck happening, and how can you best engineer circumstances to maybe try to create, you know, situations where you might get lucky again. But at the end of the day, I think you have to realize that you're going to keep making mistakes uh, at every step, and the question is to be really thoughtful and meticulous about recognizing when you do make mistakes. And it's always hard because some, a lot of it is based on your judgment. But I think one of the things that we've done really well at High Five, I think, is we we adopt a mindset of questioning all of our proclivities and instincts, uh, and we try to tear things down to first principles. And if there's one lesson that I would I would you know that I feel like I would impart in anyone who is going down the path of starting companies or creating companies, it's always tear things down to first principles understand why you're doing things what's the rationale behind it what's the motivation what are the outcomes you're trying to achieve and i feel like that's oftentimes the best way to put a check on the thing you're trying to to achieve as mm -hmm. opposed to operating out of you know sort of a default place of well this is how we did it before yeah about 10 years ago cisco and polycom were telling us but if we built out these quarter-million-dollar telepresence rooms, yeah. that we would save tons of money on travel. People wouldn't have to fly across the country anymore because it would just feel like we were in the same room. Yeah. Didn't work out that way. Didn't really turn out. So what's the reality? So the reality is, I think what Cisco and Polycom tried to, to envision was a world a lot like what IBM tried to envision back in the day. Right. I don't know if you. Uh, I don't know if you remember the story or not. But IBM used to always talk about how they thought that there was uh, a worldwide market of about five for the number of computers that would get sold. <laughs> now, of course, at the time, their idea of a computer was this gigantic thing uh, that you deployed in, you know, a uh, a huge uh, closet, and uh, and of course, there was a very small market for computers like that. And so, I think. What Polycom and Cisco imagined started from an okay place, but I think the reality is that uh, people actually crave more connection with each other, not less. I think people need to sit there in person. It's why I travel to go visit customers in person as the founder and CEO of a video conferencing company. Mm. We sit here and uh, uh, we want to form that relationship with, with people. We want to shake each other's hands. There's something that happens when you shake someone's hand. And I think it's a miss to say that people don't want to travel and don't want to, to form strong connections with people. Our viewpoint is very different, which is the enemy, I think, is that faceless device that sits on your table that you do a conference call with that prevents you from actually creating that connection. And so what video conferencing actually offers, I think, is a substitute for that faceless conference call where you know, 90% of what people are doing is actually checking their email <laughs> as opposed to having a conversation. And you, know, you think about all the circumstances where that matters. When I'm talking to somebody who might be uh, coming from a different country and we have different cultures and we have different ways and styles of communicating, being able to see each other is a critical part to being able to understand what they're saying. Um, I don't speak Chinese or Japanese, but whenever I talk with our partners in China and Japan, if I'm just doing a conference call with them, 
it is exceedingly difficult, if not impossible, to be able to properly understand each other in both directions. And being able to see each other makes a big difference. And so our viewpoint is a video is actually a way to bring people together and help them get more connected. Uh, it's what we saw happen at Google, worldwide company, and this is what inspired the idea for High Five. Worldwide company, we got video to work as the default way to communicate. And you know, you look at what we're doing in the world now. We're you know we're editing DNA. We're shooting rockets off to the moon that can come back and land. We're uh, uh, making food from uh, you know making meat from plants. We're fixing you know diseases and all kinds of things. Yet our technology that we use to collaborate with people is still stuck in 1970s and 1980s technology. And so our viewpoint is not that you really not that we should be striving to prevent travel. It should be that. It's a replacement from this need to want to travel more. In fact, if travel were more convenient, and if we could get from uh, uh, from one location to another in 15 or 20 minutes flat, I think that would actually eliminate the need for video conferencing because we'd rather just show up and meet there in person. Hmm. And so I think our, our viewpoint is that, that, that that humans are trying to communicate with each other and connect with each other more and not less. And anything that you can do to help people do that is ultimately a win. And for us, it's the, the faceless conference call that's really the, 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 the drag on the way we connect with each other. It kind of touches on the reason why I've never done an episode of this podcast over the phone. Absolutely. Yeah, you want to do this in person because you can't have a conversation like this and can't react to each other. And there's just all the stuff that comes from uh, being able to connect with people, particularly when you're in person. Well, thanks for coming here to sit down next to me, in front of me, so that we could have this conversation. John, this was really fantastic. John, I really appreciate great. the time. I'm John Ford from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Please do leave a review if you enjoyed this. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube, F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X dot com slash YouTube. Follow me, John Fort, on Facebook and Twitter. You'll see video from some of these interviews, and you can say hi to me live, usually Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. There I tackle some of the most interesting business and economic issues with a little help from my friends at CNBC and from you. Latest topics include things like the new tax laws, Bitcoin. Just go to YouTube and search for Fort Knox or go to Facebook and search for John Fort and you know what to do from there. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or fortknox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.